The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello, welcome to a special edition of What Catholics Believe. Actually, this is a continuation of our catechism series. It's been a while since we had the last installment. I appreciate your patience with that. We're looking at Lesson 41 tonight. And that's Lesson 41 in this book, A Brief Catechism for Adults by Father William Cogan. And uh, this volume is readily available. It's also available online, by the way. But um, it has been updated somewhat with some of the changes. But whenever they may, uh, whenever they speak of things that have been changed, they always point out that what the traditional practice was. So uh, that makes it helpful, certainly. And uh, now we've had our so far forty lessons, and um, they certainly could be vastly improved upon. Uh, the catechism lessons that have been done here have been done rather impromptu, often uh, later in the evening. And um, so uh, they're not thoroughly prepared. It's more or less an impromptu chat, or more or less. But at least I hope that it has met a need that was out there. And as I say, um, much better could be done, and probably has been done by others. <clears throat> but as St. John Bosco said, it's important not to let the the better be the enemy of the good, meaning that because you think you're going to do something better, you don't do what you should do at the time, even though you hope it would be good enough. So St. John Bosco's lesson was, do the good you can now while you can. Don't keep putting it off thinking, well, I'll do it better later. Do it while you can. So with that in mind, we went ahead with his catechism program. And uh, lesson 41 is on the Eighth Commandment. Uh, lesson 41 then begins with a quotation from the Epistle of St. James, St. James chapter 3. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is placed among our members, which defileth the whole body, and inflameth the wheel of our nativity, being set on fire by hell. For every nature of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of the rest is tamed, and hath been tamed by the nature of man, but the tongue no man can tame. An unquiet evil, full of deadly poison. By it we bless God and the Father, and by it we curse men, who are made after the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Now, the Apostle St. James uh, tells us that the, the tongue is often an instrument of, uh, of hell, actually, 
And um, he, he warns us about the dangers. Uh, perhaps this is the most famous and most scathing assessment of our human ability to speak, to speak well, but to speak badly as well, to use our tongues to express ourselves in such a way that we attack all that is good and holy. Now, this is the epistle, by the way, that Martin Luther called an epistle of straw, because this is the same epistle uh, that says that faith without works is dead. And uh, St. James' statement simply means that faith must be operative. It's not just a matter of having faith, it's a matter of being, being faithful and, and actually living your faith, not like a hypocrite, but living according to the principles of the faith that you believe. And you can tell from this uh, citation of St. James' Gospel, he's very practical in his approach to the, to the living of the faith, and uh, even zeroing in on the power of the tongue. Now, what he's, what he's dealing with here is our ability to express the truth, to communicate the truth to others. That is the substance of the Eighth Commandment. So question number one says, what is the Eighth Commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. <clears throat> um, now, as with all, all of the commandments, they, they usually refer to the worst possible case or the worst possible example of a violation. For example, uh, anger and hatred, uh, they refer to uh, in the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And obviously taking another person's life is the worst form of violence you can do to that person physically, taking their soul by scandalizing them and leading them away from God, of course, is the worst thing you can do to them spiritually. But the commandment actually begins uh, from the worst point and then applies, in a sense, to lesser and lesser, uh, lesser cases. So uh, here, the example that is taken, the example of speaking falsely, is facing, uh, speaking falsely to accuse someone, um, to accuse someone dishonestly of a crime or some, uh, some great failing. Um, this is an enormous injustice. There's a name for that, of course. It's called slander. But that's the example that is chosen here uh, as a condemnation of speaking falsely or, or lying. But it applies to a lot more than bearing false witness against one's neighbor. Uh, that is just the extreme example given. Two, what does the Eighth Commandment oblige us to do? Uh, the, the Eighth Commandment obliges us to use the power of speech according to God's plan, that is, to tell the truth. <clears throat> now, we have to keep in mind that, as St. James says, we are created in the image of God. And uh, that image of God in us by nature is to be found in our powers of intelligence and will. Intellect enables us to know what is true, and even to know what truth is. And will enables us to love what is good. And of course, again, our intelligence enables us to know, to know what goodness is. And our intelligence and our will both enable us to enjoy what is truly beautiful. And the true and the good and the beautiful are what 
the philosophers call the transcendentals, the things that transcend, transcend the goods of the earth, material goods of the world. We are created for these. We are meant to find truth and goodness and beauty in God himself, who is the origin of all these things. He is our destiny. He's the one we are created for. And to find our happiness in him is our ultimate, ultimate goal. So it starts with the intelligence, though, the ability to know what is true. And now God has given us human beings the, the power not only to know what is true, but to communicate what is in our minds. The truth that is in our minds, we have the ability to communicate to each other. That's a great power, a marvelous power. Um, other forms of life, even those uh, most uh, advanced, you might say, or the, the higher orders of life on earth cannot even approximate our ability to communicate. Uh, they communicate by grunts, grunts and sounds and so on and so forth. Very, very simple, simple things, no complex thoughts of any kind. And um, we, on the other hand, find it routine as though we, we find it to be perfectly natural to communicate. Uh, not only our most visceral feelings, but our most complex thoughts of all. Because God has given us the ability to express ourselves in words, language. In fact, scientists have, have found and they've studied uh, in the neuro neurological makeup of the brain, kind of grids, a grid in the brain that is actually designed for language. So our brains actually are designed for language and to communicate with language. But it is not only by the spoken word through the tongue that we communicate what is in our minds. Our facial expressions can answer questions, can convey what's in our minds. Our, our hand motions can convey, can convey all kinds of answers and thoughts. You know, Shaking our head can give us answers, yes or no, or who knows. Um, we can convey our thoughts in so many different ways. Um, our stop signs, our written words on uh, storefronts and all the rest, these are all ways that we communicate with each other. And um, in every one of those ways we communicate, we can be truthful or we can be untruthful. We can be honest or dishonest. We can, we can express the truth or try to deceive people. Uh, a label, a false label on a, uh, on a can of food in the store is as much of a lie as coming out and, and speaking it with your tongue. Uh, so all of the ways that we communicate are ways in which we can use or abuse to either, uh, speak the truth, uh, to uh, attack the truth, and thus attract, uh, attack another person who believes a lie, uh, we can honor God by what we say and how we say it, or we can attack God by what we say and how we say it. <clears throat> so we have to be very careful. It's a huge responsibility we have to be honest. Why? <clears throat> because not only do we owe it to God that we speak the truth, but we owe the truth to our neighbor. It's a matter of justice. We owe the truth to others. We have the right to be able to trust us to level with them and speak the truth to them. Um, it's a matter of, as I say, the virtue of justice, so that when we 
lie, we are guilty of, an, of uh, injustice. We can commit multiple sins of injustice by lying against another person. We can deceive them. We can get them into serious trouble, cost them a lot of anguish, maybe a pain, a suffering, physical loss, uh, injury, uh, financial loss. We can even scandalize them and do spiritual harm to them by deceiving them. So there's an enormous amount of responsibility we have to express our thoughts truthfully and charitably. So it's not just a matter of justice, it actually is a matter of charity as well. Both justice and charity come together in what we say and how we say it, what we convey to each other and how we convey it to each other. Now, number three here on page 151 in the book that I mentioned here, they give a list of sins against the Eighth Commandment. So these are just, you might say, typical sins committed against the Eighth Commandment. First of all, they start with lying, <clears throat> out and out saying something that is false, with the intention of convincing someone else to believe that it's true. And um, again, lying in itself is a sin, and it can be a mortal sin, depending on the gravity of the lie and how much damage it does, and the malice of the intent of the lie, too. Um, but we can also sin by hurting someone's reputation. And uh, by the way, that is um, not only uh, necessarily by lying, we can hurt another's reputation by telling the truth, but telling it to someone who has no right to know it. Not everybody has a right to know everything about us. And uh, every one of us has things that are personal and private. We don't expect people to go around talking about these things. Uh, it's none of their business. You know, if somebody actually attacks another's reputation by telling a, uh, a damaging truth about them, but a truth that somebody else has no need and therefore no right to know, that in itself is, is also a sin against the Eighth Commandment, even though we're telling the truth. Telling the damaging truth about another person um, without any real justification is a sin against justice and, and a charity. And yes, it is a sin, even though what we say is true. It's all the worse if we slander someone and we spread a, a damaging lie about somebody else. So if I, if I spread a damaging truth about another person that others do not have any right to know, that's a sin of detraction. If I spread a damaging lie about somebody else, that's a sin of of uh, what is called, um, I'm sorry, having a senior moment here. Um, I'll think of it, as you know, it will come to mind. But um, it is a sin of slander. There's a, another technical report, and I apologize. I've been rather ill lately, and I think that has affected me. In any case, the point is that... Um, we can sin against another by spreading a damaging lie. And the problem is, when you spread a damaging falsehood, it's almost easier to correct, because you can go back to the people you told, and you can admit, I lied, or I was, I was, I was gravely mistaken, and I'm, I'm guilty, because I, I didn't care enough about the truth to find out the, the truth. So I spread what was actually a lie about another person. So I can go and say, what I told you about this other person, what they did or what they said, was not true. So don't hold it against them. I'm the culprit. But uh, 
if you tell a damaging truth about somebody, well, it doesn't really do much good to go back and be able to say, look, what I told you about that other person was very damaging and it was entirely true. Yes, they really did that, but I shouldn't have told you. That really doesn't help. And so oddly enough, even though the sin of slander uh, is uh, much worse um, in itself, it's, it's uh, sometimes easier to correct because one can admit that he lied and what he said was not true. So um, in any case, unjust criticism also. Unjust criticism is a sin against the Eighth Commandment. We find people who do that who are very prone to criticize uh, other people and find fault with them. And that indicates uh, a, a rather, I should say, a certain amount of resentment against uh, another person in them. It, it tells you their mindset. Um, and it's not very flattering to find someone who indulges uh, so freely in unjust criticism of another. Gossip, gossip too. You know, there are those who gossip just for entertainment and uh, their entertainment and the entertainment of those who listen to them. Obviously, it's a sin to gossip because, it, again, it, it usually involves uh, snippy, unflattering stories about other people. This is what people generally tend to, to like to tell and like to hear. It's a sin also to listen to it because by listening to it, we're encouraging it. And by encouraging it, we're also taking a part and... Uh, and sharing in the responsibility for the sin. <clears throat> gossip can be also a form of scandal. You know, you, you hear parents tell their children, don't be nasty when you talk. You know, you're very nasty when you talk about somebody. You shouldn't be saying nasty things about somebody else. And then their children may hear them, their own parents, talking in a very nasty, gossipy way about others. And uh, children may not know the word hypocrite. They certainly may not know how to spell the word hypocrite, but they know what a hypocrite is. And they can tell when somebody is being hypocritical. And all too often, I fear that they may see adults as being rather hypocritical in how they instruct their children and what to say and what not to say, and then turn around and they're violating the very advice they gave their own children. You have to be careful about that. Insulting someone to his face obviously, is malicious. It is meant to, to wound, meant to inflict injury on another person, perhaps embarrass them in front of other people as well. So it is a sin against the Eighth Commandment. Any abuse of the power of speech. Perjury. Uh, you swear a false oath. You call God to witness the truth of what you're saying, and then you lie. It's a mortal sin. It's also a crime, by the way, uh, before the law. And you can be charged and convicted and put in jail for it. Um, um, so, uh, you know, but, it, but it's actually a form of blasphemy, too, because it's calling God, who is truth itself, to witness, to testify to the truth of something that is not true. It attacks God in his very nature as the truth itself. Perjury is very evil. Uh, not keeping secrets. We are bound to keep secrets. But again, one has to specify what the secret is. <clears throat> if someone uh, warns you ahead of time, saying, I have something to tell you, but you have to promise me you won't tell anyone. So they're giving you what is called a committed secret. And you agree not to tell anyone. Okay? You, you accept uh, the, the information they're giving you 
on the condition that you bind yourself to secrecy. And that committed secret does hold you. And you have an obligation to keep it quiet. The moment you agreed to the terms, you agreed to the obligation of justice to follow the agreement, almost like a contract. Obviously, there are limitations to it. If they tell you something that involves, a, let's say, a grave injustice or the risk of grave harm to another person uh, against the rights of another person, then you can't keep that secret, and they should not have bound you to it. It was wrong to them, wrong for them to demand it. If, for example, somebody were to say to you, oh, I've got a terrible thing to tell you, and, uh, but I've got to tell somebody, but you have to assure me you won't tell anybody else, and you agree to it, and they tell you, well, you heard that this child was going to run away from home or whatever. Would you have an obligation to keep that secret? No, and they shouldn't either. They'd have an obligation to tell the people who have a right to know, and that is the parents of that child. They have an obligation. They have a need to, to know that, and you have an obligation in justice to tell them. And this other person who might insist that you uh, promise them to keep it secret, they would be, not, first of all, committing a sin against justice in keeping it secret themselves, and then certainly uh, requiring you to keep it secret? No. That would be wrong to do that. So if somebody commits a secret to you that, that, that is a very uh, great risk to somebody else's life and limb or their actual natural rights, then you're not necessarily bound to it. If you have doubt about it, you should talk to a priest and find out where the obligation lies. You might actually have an obligation to tell the secret, <coughs> uh, an obligation in justice not to keep the secret. But let's say somebody commits a secret to you uh, after he's told you. <clears throat> let's say somebody says, oh, did you hear this? But don't tell anybody after they told you. Well, you didn't agree to anything. And after all, they told somebody. Why should they be surprised if they told someone and you tell someone, what did you do that they haven't already done? So, uh, but, you know, secrets, <coughs> even apart from whether they're where, whether they're committed or not. Secrets have us carry a certain responsibility anyway, just by the very nature of the fact they're secrets. And so there are certain things that by nature really must be held secret. And there are certain things that should not be held secret. And as I say, the things that should not be held secret are the things that represent a danger to, let's say, another innocent person being defrauded or whatever else. We'll get into that question in a minute here, too. Um, now, with regard to, um, um, let's see, making known the sins of others. Well, that sometimes has to do with hurting another's reputation and so on. Again, revealing the hidden sins of another person is wrong. You know that if you hear over here a... a uh, uh, a, a confession, and you hear somebody accusing himself of sin, you're obliged, not only under pain of mortal sin, but under pain of excommunication, to keep secret whatever you learn that was confessed for the sake of receiving absolution. So if you're walking by a confessional, or you're kneeling on the other side of the confessional, and you hear somebody confess something for the sake of being absolved, and that's why he's revealing this to the priest, but you overhear it, you have a serious obligation to maintain the secrecy of that, even under pain of excommunication. 
That's how serious that is. The seal of confession. But if you, if you are aware, perhaps the one person or one of only a handful of people who are aware of the serious sin of another person, you are obliged on a number of counts to be quiet about them. If it's uh, not notorious, but if it's clandestine, it would be scandalous for you to go around spreading word about that. You'd be the one causing scandal by spreading the word about it and making it notorious. You'd be also attacking the good reputation of another person. As I say, I mean, every human being alive is a sinner, especially Christ said he came to call sinners to his church so that he could justify them of sin and sanctify them. And um, so, um, you know, everyone has a right to his own reputation and, and privacy. Um, and to violate that wantonly is a very serious sin. So um, one has to be very careful not to do that. Um, and if one, it's, it's so serious a matter of injustice that if one were to, so for example, wantonly reveal the sins or shortcomings of another that are purely private, so, but let's say revealing something about them that others have no right and no need to know caused them some serious loss, you might even be obliged to compensate them and make restitution for them because of the, of the loss and the damage you caused them with no real justification. Um, here's one, judging another without sufficient evidence. Well, that's called rash judgment. What that means is, uh, let's say, for example, I leave $10 on the table I come back later and it's gone. And my immediate reaction is, oh, I bet it was that so-and-so. I never did trust him. And I have no evidence for it whatsoever. Just, I didn't even know Mitzerti was in the room. But I just figure, well, if anybody's going to take it, he'd be the one to take it. That's rash judgment. Because I don't have any, any evidence for it. Could have been anybody. Somebody could have picked it up and said, oh, look, somebody left these behind. I'll find the owner. Uh, but I'm accusing somebody of, of uh, stealing it and being guilty of it. And not even knowing if the crime was committed in the first place, that there was a crime to commit. Um, so rash judgment is making a judgment about somebody uh, being guilty when I really don't have the evidence necessary to establish his guilt. Rash suspicion is a step in that direction where I, I may say, well, okay, um, I don't accuse this one of doing it, but I would think that that person is certainly capable of doing this because my estimation of that person is not good. So even having a rash suspicion about another person is already sinful. It's wrong, and it indicates a certain malice on our part or contempt <coughs> toward another person where there's not even the evidence necessary to suspect them. That's why it's rash suspicion. What kind of sin is it to tell a lie? It's a mortal sin. Uh, of itself. And it does admit of what they call parvity of matter. That is, it can be a sin which really does little or no harm. Um, there are some things called jocose lies that really um, literally mean joke. They're, they're joking lies where we play a prank on someone. They don't really do them any harm. They just embarrass them for a moment and give everybody a laugh. Um, often guys poke fun at each other this way and um, get a laugh, a rise out of each other that way. Wouldn't be a mortal sin to do that unless it was out of real malice or caused some grave damage. Um, 
once it, it said that when St. Thomas Aquinas was a uh, seminarian uh, with the Dominicans, a junior, he, um, his, his uh, fellow, um, I would call them seminarians, uh, Dominican, uh, before, before, before ordination, um, were having a, uh, playing a joke on him. He was called the dumb ox, and he was the ox because he was very big physically. He was a very large person, tall and, and broad, shouldered and so on. And uh, he was called the dumb ox, not because he was stupid, but because he spoke so little. Uh, he, he was a very quiet person. And um, so his uh, quicker and brighter and, uh, shall we say, um, more gregarious uh, members of the religious order uh, would poke fun at him. And once, supposedly, they, they challenged each other, do you think we could get him to believe this? And one of them yelled down the corridor to him, uh, look out the window, Thomas, look, it's a flying ox. Uh, obviously poking fun at him. And St. Thomas Aquinas came over to the window and looked out as though he was looking for the flying ox. And they were laughing. They thought they couldn't believe that he could be so credulous. But actually, uh, they said to him, you know, Thomas, come on, you know, this is ridiculous. Did you really think an ox could fly? And uh, he said, well, I'd rather believe that an ox could fly than my, brother, my brothers in religion would lie to me. Now, it just sounded a little intolerant and as though he didn't have much of a sense of humor. But I think St. Thomas was trying to make a point with him that, um, you know, there was getting a little out of hand and it was a little mean-spirited. But also, they had better things to do that uh, they were being very silly and it was kind of unworthy, unworthy of uh, those who are candidates for the priesthood in the Dominican order to conduct themselves like that. <clears throat> and uh, he was more serious, obviously, more mature than they. I think he was trying to tell them to grow up, basically. But uh, that would be an example of the Jokos lie. And uh, it's a waste of speech. You know, it's what we call, at the least, idle speech. And the Bible tells us that we're responsible even for our idle speech. So we've got to be careful about that. People can get carried away as jokesters. It's not a virtue. It's not something that should be encouraged. Um, often jokesters have a hard time being serious about much of anything. But in any case, that did no harm to St. Thomas. It certainly was not a mortal sin on the part of these fellows here. Um, but again, it can get carried away. Okay. Now, five, are you ever allowed to tell a lie? Is it ever okay? No. An outright lie is always wrong. An outright lie, meaning that you communicate to another person with the intention of deceiving him, is always sinful. Um, even, even a venial sin. You could not even tell a venial sin deliberately for the sake of saving your own life. You just couldn't do it. Now, there is something called a broad mental reservation, which we'll talk about in a minute, here, which uh, might be a little confusing uh, at first, but I think you'll see the point that it's not actually a lie. But we'll talk about that in a second here. Uh, but here, number five, they quote St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter four, wherefore, St. Paul says, putting away lying, speak ye the truth, every man with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So uh, again, St. Paul does talk about 
lying and deceitfulness in his list of sins is something that Christians, true Christians, just don't do. Number six, what must you do if you have told lies about another person? Well, if you've lied about another person, then you have to fix it. You have to try to restore their good name. Now, maybe I could tell lies about another person that are very flattering. <coughs> and I say good things about another person that I don't really believe. But that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about lies that are said maliciously or carelessly, uh, heedless of their reputation, or even for the sake of attacking their reputation. And um, they are um, therefore uh, damaging. And uh, we have certain obligations in justice. We have an obligation to try to repair the damage we've done. Um, if they've suffered losses because of the lies we've told about them, or the things revealed about them unnecessarily, we are responsible for those losses. We have to go back and make things right. If it's a matter of going and telling others, look, I spread a false story, damaging story about this other person, what I said was not true. Please don't think that they are guilty of these crimes. I tell you, I am the one who either lied outright or I was just so careless with the truth, I didn't care whether I was saying it was true or not. And I have to take that responsibility. That's how I make the reparation for it. Um, so, uh, is it a sin to make known the hidden sins of another person? Uh, yes, actually it is. We talked about that a minute ago. To reveal the hidden sins of another person is wrong. And, uh, you know, when you are close to someone in life, you have information about them that is actually private because of your closeness to them. And when you work with people, you get to know them better than if they're just strangers on the street. When you're friends with someone, you get to know them better. And your friendship opens doors and access to their lives and knowledge about them, including their faults and shortcomings. When you're married to someone, when you live under the same roof with your own children and so on, brothers and sisters, you know things about them. You're privy, as they call them, privy uh, to things that are private about them. And you have an obligation to maintain a certain discretion in what you say. God forbid a wife or a husband should reveal to others, friends, relatives, hidden things that the other person really considered to be personal, private, and just intimate knowledge between the two of them, husband and wife. That would be a very grave, grave breach of, uh, of trust. So uh, again, um, to reveal things uh, to others that another would find embarrassing, mortifying, um, or worse, would be, would be very wrong. And it would be a sin against the Eighth Commandment. Ninth Commandment, a ninth uh, question here, they ask about perjury. Well, I already talked about perjury, and yes, it is a sin. It even comes down to blasphemy, too. Now, with regard to that mental reservation that I talked about, uh, we read about this in the moral theology books. Um, there is the uh, strict mental reservation, which is, is an out-and-out out out lie. A strict mental reservation is just saying something that is just downright, outright false for the purpose of deceiving another person. But a broad mental reservation is not that. And a broad mental reservation can be justified. 
And this is, this is what constitutes a broad mental reservation. If someone wants information that that person has no right to, and should know reasonably, the person has no right to, you have no obligation to give them the information. You might have an obligation not to give them the information. For example, a doctor has a professional secrecy. We talk about the HIPAA regulations now, the HIPAA regulations that are in, in force in medicine, where even nurses on phones cannot reveal, or, or even in hospitals, reveal to priests who come to see the sick what their conditions are, how grave, or how, what danger they're in. <laughs> they share that information with the immediate relatives, and the relatives have to give that information. But the nursing and the medical staff is not, is not necessarily permitted to give that information even to priests who need to know for the good of the soul. It's just the rules, you know. And um, it, evidently it came in because too much information was given out by too many to too many people who were not authorized to know. And so uh, they're, they're keeping the information very close to the best here. But um, when I call, for example, if I'm being called to the bedside of someone who is ill, possibly dying, and I, I will find when I ask the... Uh, nursing clientele, well, you know, what condition are they in? Are they dying? And so on. They will often say, well, I, I can't reveal that. I can't share that information with you. And I respect that because I understand there are legal restraints on them. And sometimes I'll ask them, well, uh, you're, you're the nurse in charge. You're going to see this person tomorrow and so on. Would you be surprised if you came in tomorrow and find out that they passed away overnight? Sometimes they feel free to Express that, well, I'd, I'd be surprised, or no, I wouldn't be surprised to find that they had passed away. And sometimes that tells me enough what I, what I need to know. But in any case, um, there's a professional secrecy there that they cannot tell you, unfortunately, even with the priest. But they've got someone on the phone, they don't know who it is. I understand that. But uh, it applies not only to medicine, it applies to law too. I mean, the lawyers have a professional, professional client. Uh, attorney privilege there. Uh, by law, they have that. And uh, what the client tells the attorney is something that the attorney is bound by law to maintain secrecy. And um, if someone were to come up to the lawyer and say, did so-and-so, did your client tell you that he did this or said that? Um, the person who approached the lawyer should know the lawyer can't tell him, cannot answer the question will not answer the question, must not ask the question. So the lawyer is actually free to say no, uh, or deny it, or even deny knowing, or deny that, that it, the subject ever came up. Even though the subject came up and the lawyer knows very well the answer and what the, person, the client said, the individual who's accosting him for information <clears throat> has no right to the information, and has no right to ask for the information. And any reasonable, intelligent person should know that. So the lawyer is actually not lying. He's giving actually a professional non-answer. The same with the priest. The priest, above all, has an obligation of uh, secrecy. It's called the seal of confession. If somebody were to come up to a priest and ask him, did my wife, my, my son, my brother, my client, my employer, my employee, did they confess this to you? 
the priest has an obligation, not only under pain of mortal sin, but under pain of automatic excommunication, most specially reserved to the Holy See itself, not to reveal anything that was told him for the sake of sacramental absolution from sin. He would have to die. If necessary, he'd have to die a thousand deaths rather than betray that confidence. And everybody knows that, or should. And so if a priest were accosted by someone demanding to know, and there have been priests who actually died rather than betrayed the seal of confession, um, the priest would have to give an answer that would be a complete non-answer. He could say, I don't know, I have no idea. Usually when a priest answered like that, he'd be telling the absolute truth anyway, because when priests are in confessional, they don't keep track of what people tell them. Honestly, they don't. They don't want to. Why? Well, their purpose for being there is to make these sins go away. The whole point is to make the sins go away. So why would the priest come out of the confessional dragging all these around with him when the whole point was to make them go away once and for all? Uh, and the priest is a great relief. When the priest comes out of the confessional, I don't know if the people feel relieved, but the priest feels relieved that all that, all that is gone. It's off the books, so to speak. So when a priest tells you an hour later, or a day later, or a week later, that he doesn't remember what you told him in confession, believe him. He doesn't remember. He didn't want to remember. He, he wants to forget anyway. To begin, he goes into the confession with the intention of not remembering anything he's told. So, um, so it's true. But even if a priest did remember what was told to him in the confessional, he would still be forbidden to answer the question. And he'd have to be beware of answering the question in such a way that he could hint. For example, if he said, no, no, the person didn't tell me anything like that. <clears throat> Well, that could already be interpreted in a certain way uh, as answering the question. So the priest needs to give a non-answer. And so his non-answer is simply, I have no idea. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, th this also, by the way, even begs the question of whether the priest even knows who was going to confession. And the priest, again, he's, he's not paying attention to who's going to confession. He's not... Uh, analyzing the voices or anything like that. It's not the, the, the point there. The point is to make the sins go away. So, uh, first of all, it, it's very unlikely that he knows who's going to confession. And second of all, when he comes out of the confessional, he doesn't remember what they told him anyway. So, these are broad mental reservations insofar as they are giving non-answers that any reasonable, intelligent, sensible person would know are simply non-answers that they have no right to ask, and the priest has an obligation not to tell. The doctor, the lawyer, whoever has the professional information is bound to maintain secret. Now, what about those so-called little white lies? Uh, what about the, the phone ringing nowadays, I guess it would be mom's cell phone, and... Uh, <clears throat> little Johnny answers the phone, and, or little little Myrtle, <clears throat> and the voice is there. It says, is your mommy home? And Johnny and Myrtle go running off, and mommy says, tell them I'm not home. So uh, they come back to the phone and say, mommy's not home. Mommy, mommy says she's not home. <laughs> Something to that effect. 
uh, or says mommy's not home right now. Obviously, if the child says mommy says she's not home, that's not a good cover. If the child says mommy's not home, that's bad too because it indicates to some anonymous caller that a parent is not there. And the child, who knows, might be alone. That's not good either. But we're not concerned about that. That's not the issue here. The issue is mommy just told the child to go tell the person on the phone something that's not true. And mommy has told the child, never lie, don't lie, tell the truth. But mommy now tells the child, tell them I'm not home. The child knows very well mommy's home. And the child knows very well that what he's saying is not true. So the child can be scandalized by that. And a parent has to be very careful about what he or she instructs the child to say. As the parent does not want to say anything that would contradict what the parent is trying to teach the child about being truthful. But the question is here, uh, would it be wrong, for example, for uh, someone to um, make an excuse why I can't talk to you? I'm busy right now, or I've got this or that. Uh, maybe they're taking a nap, and they say, I'm busy right now, or I can't, you know, I've got an appointment going on or something like that. Well, in polite company, that's a put-off. And that's basically saying, I can't talk to you right now. I don't want to talk to you right now. I have no obligation to talk to you right now. And you might even say, you have a lot of nerve in calling me right now, <laughs> a cold call, because you're disturbing me. And you have no right to my time. My time is dedicated to something else. People who make calls like that, they know, they understand, that they, they do not have a strict right to your time just because they call you and get you on the other end of the phone. So again, their reasonable understanding of your answer is, look, I'm not, I don't want to talk to you, okay? They're just trying to be polite, make an excuse, but it really is a matter of like a non-answer. I've got to go, okay? Um, so they need to reasonably express uh, they're okay with that. You know, and, and they, they shouldn't be doing that in the first place if they don't already understand that. So uh, technically speaking, I think it would also fall into the realm of a broad mental reservation just because any reasonable person would understand. They're uh, out of the blue demanding the time of someone's life who really has something better to do with that time uh, and has no obligation to give them that, that time and attention. Now, um, what about someone coming to the door and let's say the man with the violin case and the dark glasses comes to the door and says they want to see your dad because um, he owes the money and you think oh dear this could be dangerous and you say my daddy's not here but he's hiding behind the door well again does the person who's standing at the door have a reasonable right to know where daddy is and the answer is no if he intends to do harm to him so again i mean this would not be considered an out and out lie it would be considered, again, a broad rental reservation because the person who's demanding the information has no right to it. And you have an obligation, on the other hand, to protect your father, your child, whatever. And any reasonable person would understand that. You're at dinner at somebody's home and they served you something less than appetizing, okay? They serve you something that is abominable, uh, at least for you. I mean, everybody likes something, a different taste. De gustibus non est disputandum, as they say. So um, you, you find what they're serving very distasteful, and you, you try it, you, you taste it, you eat a helping of it, 
and they ask you, oh, how did you like that? You know, would you like some more? And uh, what do you say? Do you say, that was the most horrible food I ever tasted in my life? Of course you can't say that. They know you can't say that. Uh, could you say, well, it's delicious, thank you, but I'm full. Um, and neither one of those is true. It's not delicious and it's not, and you're not full. But the fact is, you know, the fact is there are people who would find that very delicious. I realize you're indicating that you find it delicious by saying that. Okay, I understand that too. But of course, in asking you this question, they understand the social graces forbid you, absolutely forbid you to say that was horrible. Uh, and they don't expect you to say that, and they wouldn't want you to say that even if it were true. So again, it's the social graces that move them to ask you, and the social graces that provide a non-answer. Are you full? You're full of that. Yes, you're full of as much of that as you want. That's, that could be the absolute truth. Um, but the person sitting across the table from you might find it delicious, and maybe you can speak on their behalf. The point being that there, in terms of social graces, there are non-answers that do not constitute technically lies because of the common understanding among the people involved that constitute simply uh, living together in society and having social graces and avoiding uh, hurting each other's feelings. And, and everybody with any lick of sense understands that. They don't take that as, as gospel truth just because you answer this way. Uh, when you answer, uh, thank you, it's delicious, but I've had enough or I'm full, they get the message. They do understand the truth of the matter. Uh, but you haven't offended them or insulted them. So in any case, uh, be very careful, though. There are two caveats about this. It's all too easy to pass from being ready to make excuses, to begin to, to cross over into, into lies, just out and out lies of convenience. So you have to be very careful not to do that. Children especially have to be very, very careful not to resort to broad mental reservations for their parents. And I mentioned not giving a, giving a non-answer to someone who's wanting information that you might find inconvenient. Uh, children can never invoke broad mental reservations against their parents. <clears throat> Why? Because parents always have the right to know. Parents have the need and the obligation to know the truth. And so if a broad mental reservation is not <laughs> giving information to someone who has no right to know, and you have an obligation not to tell. That doesn't apply to a child-parent relationship because the parents have the right to know. Uh, take, for example, the case, and I'll close with this case, of a child who goes to a party. Uh, let's say you get a 17-year-old who goes to a party for teenage friends, maybe a senior class party, you've got 18-year-olds, you've got 17-year-olds uh, there, you may even have 21, 22-year-olds there. There's drinking going on, okay? And some of the younger kids are drinking, including, let's say, your boy or your girl. They're being pushed upon to drink, okay? 
And uh, later on, you're wondering what happened at this party. And you, you ask them. They cannot invoke the fifth, take the Fifth Amendment. They cannot invoke the idea of a, uh, of a broad mental reservation to deceive you. Because you have no right to know. You've got a right to know. And they have an obligation to tell you. In fact, what's going on there is wrong at such a party on multiple levels. First of all, you've got underage drinking there. Okay, that's wrong in its, in its own right. And it's wrong not just because it's illegal, but it's because the parents themselves would say, no, you can't do that. I forbid you to do that. They would consider it to be, I think most parents would consider it to be a matter of mortal sin. It's a matter of obedience. And so a child who goes to a party and does that, even though he might be pressured by friends into taking a drink, alcoholic drink, is first of all guilty of disobedience. And it could be a mortal sin of disobedience against his parents. And by the very fact that he's committing a mortal sin of disobedience in front of all those people, he's also committing a mortal sin of scandal by publicly disobeying his parents. How many mortal sins of scandal does he commit? As many souls as he scandalizes. As many people who are there who knows what he's doing. As many people who are there who know what he's doing. He's scandalizing each one of them. Could be 10, could be 20 people. He's giving 20 sins of scandal to 20 different classmates of his by publicly flaunting uh, disrespect and disobedience to his own parents. It doesn't end there, though. He's putting at risk. Who's he putting at risk? Well, if he's going to be driving, obviously he's putting at risk others. Um, he's encouraging the others. He's encouraging them to do this too. And um, he might even be stealing. Why? Because the alcoholic beverages might belong to the homeowner. They might have been taken. Taken from their, their pantry or whatever it is by their own children of uh, the family that's hosting the party. And uh, might be giving them away to their friends. They might be encouraging others to sneak out and illegally buy these beverages and put themselves at risk. Or older people, brothers and sisters, who go out and buy them for them and give them to them, which, of course, would be illegal also. They're putting all these people at risk. Even the homeowners themselves have a certain responsibility before the law of what happens there within their home. And um, now there's a 17-year-old who go to, goes to a, a party where this is going on. Do they understand all this? Not yet. No. But they won't be 17 years old their entire lives. At least we hope not. We hope that's not the end of, the, of life for them. So we hope they survive that and come to understand now what they've done and the gravity of it and all the different aspects of it, that they begin to understand all that's involved in this. The lying, often... The disobedience, the scandal, sometimes theft, and, and the, the damage, the risk that they impose upon other people. Uh, it's serious business, and unfortunately, we see too often, um, we see all too often the serious consequences when uh, a carload of teenagers um, is involved in a tragic, tragic accident, some die horribly, leaving their parents terribly distraught and feeling very much betrayed and deceived because their children were, well, 
They were lying to them. And the consequences of dying that way are very, very grave. Uh, for the parents left behind, but especially for the souls of the teens who were living a lie. So, in any case, um, telling the truth is of the paramount importance. We see that today. In the world today, we have politicians, we have lawyers, we have doctors, professionals, we have so many who lie and lie and lie. And we have uh, the old Soviet Union with its communist society, all built on a lie, and survival itself in a society like that often depends upon lying and cheating and stealing just to survive. Institutionalized lying, deception. That's what happens here on Earth when people give in to what Father Vincent Bocelli called the big lie. Today we have the big lie that men can become women and women can become men, even though it's imprinted in their very DNA, whether they're men or women. And we can't fix it, we can't change that. <clears throat> that you can, you can lie about so many, many different things, boldly, brashly. Who was it who said, tell a lie loudly enough and often enough and it, it'll be accepted as the truth. Well, Father Vincent Michelli was right, God rest his soul. We do live in the age of the big lie, where they lie boldly and continually and proudly, boasting even of their lies. And we see the gravity of this because the lie attacks the very foundation of the divine image in man, his intelligence, and separates him from the God of truth. God forbid that you and I should ever, we should ever give in to that, should ever accept that, should ever submit to that. No, <clears throat> the truth and the truth alone can make you free. Following and being faithful to the one who is the way and the truth and the life, that alone can actually make you free. God bless you.